Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. This morning, I was thinking about what I was going to say tonight. How on earth could I craft a Reader's Digest version of who our amazing authors are and what they've accomplished? Actually, I've been thinking about this for weeks and weeks, um, just wanting to have it be perfect. This morning, as I was brushing my teeth, I thought to myself, their story is better than anything Hollywood could dream up. Two extraordinary, dynamic, gorgeous young people from backgrounds as different as you can imagine. One overcoming staggering difficulties as a child, the other forging out so far beyond her initial life experience and with a happy ending to boot. I'm wondering, hey, are you guys optioned yet? And then during Q&A, we can decide who's going to play Jessica and who's going to play Kennedy. And I'd like to keep this brief because we're really here to hear Jessica and Kennedy tell their own story. Jessica Posner Odede is a born and bred Denver native, a bright star from an early age, creative and bold, and now a nationally recognized social entrepreneur and activist. She landed in Kibera, one of the largest slums in Africa, in 2007 during her Wesleyan junior year abroad. There, she met Kennedy Odede, the mayor of Kibera, with the intent of doing theater project at his fledgling organization, which would become the internationally recognized and celebrated Shining Hope for Communities. During that sojourn, she rejected the norm of living with a conventional host family, and she became one of the first outsiders to live inside the slum. This was much to the consternation of many, including her parents. Jessica was profoundly moved by the struggles facing the community and formed a powerful bond with its population and with Kennedy. Kennedy Odede is one of Africa's best-known community organizers and social entrepreneurs. He was raised in Kibera, the largest urban slum in Africa, where he experienced the devastating realities of life in extreme poverty. Still, he dreamed about changing his community. In 2004, Kennedy started the Shining Hope for Communities movement through a simple, brilliant act. Driven by the innovation and entrepreneurial spirits of the people of Kibera, Shafco became the largest grassroots organization in the slum. The Clintons, Mia Farrow, Nicholas Kristof are among their many fans, and their work has changed the lives of many of Kibera's most vulnerable population, its girls. Jess and Kennedy founded Kibera's first tuition-free school for girls, and they are just getting started. They have expanded their model to con- connect essential services like health cl- care, clean water, and economic empowerment programs. They've opened an identical project in Mathare, Kenya's second largest slum, and intend to expand their remarkably successful program for change. They have received prestigious grants, numerous awards, and countless accolades, though I suspect the recognition that means the most comes from their own community in Kibera. 
They've been featured in the PBS series A Path Appears and on NBC News with Chelsea Clinton. Kennedy's written op-eds for the New York Times and... To my great surprise and delight, one time I was at the nail salon browsing through Vogue, and there was a full-page feature on Jessica. Well, I'm going to stop now and let them tell their own incredible story. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome our speakers tonight, and these must be their official titles because I got them online looking at their wedding video. Meet Kennedy. He's the chief. Meet Jessica She's the boss. (laughs) Find me unafraid. Hi. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Um, This is, it's amazing to be home in the tattered cover with so many people who I've known almost my whole life, um, my kindergarten teacher, my parents, um, so many of you who have been so important to me in my journey, and and some of you who are new to our story. So we're really, really thrilled to be here um, in front of such a supportive crowd. Um, So we're going to tell you a bit of our story. For those of you who know, hopefully you learn something new. And for those of you who are new to us and and to our work, um, we hope that you'll become part of this movement too. Thank you you so much. I'm feeling so happy because Denver is a special place for me. Uh, I remember when I first came to America, Denise and the rest, I got a lot of clothes, you know, for winter. So I really felt, I'm like, I'm like in Kibera, this home. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long journey, and I don't know where to start, but I, I grew up in a big slum, a struggle place whereby you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So at the age of 10, I ran away from the house to look for food, and I became a homeless kid. My parents were not able to pay my school fees, and, you know, in, in, in Kenya, when you go to school, you wear a bright uniform. You know, uniform is a sign of a pride. So I asked my mom, I want to go to school. Kennedy, we don't have money. We can't afford. So I was very, I really loved education, not because of something important, but because I never got it. <laughs> so when I went on the street as a little boy, I was collecting all the newspapers, anything written, so that I can try to read myself. And because I was missing that part of education, I used to see other kids doing homework. I couldn't do it, you know. So I taught myself how to read and write from the street. And growing up, so I lost hope. I'll be honest with you. It was really hard. I never knew I will make it. You know, you live whereby you look around your neighborhood, you don't see anybody who have ever made it. And therefore, you lose that sense of belonging, sense of hope. My, most of my friends joined the gang some of them were doing prostitution because there is no dream. So what happened for me, I really became an, uh, an angry person, so sad, because I don't see the future. But something happened to me. So one day I got a, a book, uh, topography, speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. He's an American, <laughs> a great man. And I was so inspired. And I said, these men never lose focus. I want to be like him. And I was a little boy. I, I won't give up now. So, and, uh, and then, you know, and I got a lot of support from my mom, you know, 
My mother, she's a very, very strong woman who never went to school, but very, very smart. And she used to tell me that you have to be there for other people. So when we have a, a food in our house, which was rarely not common, every time we ate something, you have to drink a lot of water to fill your belly, because never enough. But there was a day I was going to chase away other neighbor's kids who were coming in when we were eating. And my mom looked at me and said, Kennedy, don't chase them. You don't have to be rich or to be poor to have an impact in somebody's life. That was a message for me. That I can change my community. I don't have to be rich. Another thing she told me was that, well, you know, in Africa we have snakes which are poisonous snakes. You know, they can bite you. She said, Kennedy, when you see a snake, don't have to look for the sticks. Use whatever you have to beat the snake. Therefore, my poverty was the snake. <laughs> you know, so it was really interesting for me. So I got a job in the factory, and I was earning one dollar for ten hours. I was around fifteen years old, and every day I went to the factory, I was crying because was, uh, you know because of that kind of hard life. But I wanted to change my community. What's so powerful here is that we were able to come together. Not that I was very happy. I'm being honest here. I was very angry and mad with the society. Therefore, I joined theater. She was doing theater in a different way. My theater was more radical theater. You know, ambush theater to work on women issues in the community. It was much more because I'm angry and this was the only way to, to portray your anger in a peaceful way, in a way to change the society. So, this is a f- sweet part for Denver people. So, one day I got an email from a lady by the name Jessica Posner. Uh, she was coming to study abroad in Kenya. And she asked me in an email that she wanted to come and work with us in Kibera, you know, in my theater that you were working on. And I told her, Jessica, that's a good idea, but this is a movement that we are doing here. Please, can you send me your resume? <laughs> <laughs> so Jessica was able to work on her resume, and she sent it, which was good. And then we were like, Really looks good. She was really good in theater, honestly. <laughs> and you know that. You know that. You know. <laughs> then Jessica came to Kenya, and she will now, after coming to Kibera, she was like, you know, Kennedy, I cannot just come here to see how people struggle, and then going back to where people are rich, having good shower, having good food, and yet other other teenagers who are, who are here are going hungry. What I want to do, I want to stay with your family too. And I say, Jessica, you are crazy. You can't do that. You can't survive here. There's no running water. There's no toilet. There is no... It's not a place for you. But Jessica being Jessica, <laughs> she forced herself to our house. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> and well, the funny part was my neighbors. Because she was the first white person to do that. So my neighbors were knocking every morning. She's dead or alive. <laughs> and I want to say before that I really loved reading a lot because when I was using the when I was in a drug using the drugs as a kid it was a way to forget your poverty but when I found the love of books became a way to to enjoy life you know so I read a lot of stories that from American books when you love somebody you don't tell them the first time that you love them so you keep it so when I met Jessica and I really loved her I remember my books that I was reading 
Kennedy, don't Stella, keep it. <laughs> but anyway, but something bad happened. Jessica got uh, malaria. And she was she got really skinny in the, she went to the hospital and she was now in a ward. Skinny, the, the bad skinny, real skinny. Huh? That she, I thought she was gonna die. And I'm like, you know, in my African culture, you don't let people die with your feeling, yeah? You have to tell them. So now I say, Kennedy, what will I do? I will go to the hospital and see when she's sleeping, I'll tell her I love her. So I went and I looked at her. She, I thought she was gonna die. Say, before she died, let me say, I love you. And I ran back to Kibera. So I, want, I don't know if Jessica heard my, the, that word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in the hospital with malaria. Um, I was in the hospital for five days, really sick. My poor parents. Um, m- my mom was calling Kennedy. I think that was their first introduction. She was calling him every five minutes to say, please write down everything they're giving her and you know, email it to me. And, and I did hear what Kennedy said. And so I got better and had to talk to him about, you know, did, is, is this real? Did this happen? I think you said this thing. So we fell in love. Um, and I was studying abroad in Kenya, grew up here in Denver, went to Wesleyan University, and was so interested in seeing what the world looked like, and knew that there was so much out there, the world was such a bigger place than I had ever seen, and so decided I wanted to go to Kenya. And by coincidence, somebody I knew who was working at Curious Theater Company had just gone to Kenya. And she had met Kennedy and said, oh, there's this guy, you have to meet him. So I sent Kennedy an email and said, I want to come work with you. I want to do street theater with you. By the way, can I move in with you and your family? I had no idea what I was talking about. And he wrote back and said, absolutely not. And I was determined from that point forward. And so we met. And and the first day we met, I think Kennedy held my hand a little bit too long as we crossed the street. And I looked at him funny. And, and he looked at me and he told me that holding hands is part of Kenyan culture. And so I was so proud I had learned a Kenyan culture. And so we walked around for, for weeks holding hands, only to find out later that it was definitely not a Kenyan culture. <laughs> and so this semester in Kenya changed my whole perspective. And I came back to Denver and I looked at the world so differently and looked at all that I had and the access to education, my parents who were so dedicated to, to giving me and my brother and sister everything. And Kennedy at this time was stuck in the middle of terrible political violence. And so I helped him get out of the country. And then we started talking about what was next and decided he had to go to college. And so I wrote letters to universities and he got accepted with a full scholarship to Wesleyan and to a few other places. And so he came here and our worlds converged and we had this idea of what could we really do to change Kibera. And it came back to this idea of women and girls. And so we had this dream to start the first free school for girls in Kibera. So we went back and we had $10,000, which we thought was the most money in the world. Soon learned that that wasn't quite enough. And so luckily I had some babysitting money that we we put together and finished the project. And we switched continents. And so I moved to Kenya and we started to grow this movement of a girls' school connected to holistic social services like healthcare, clean water, economic empowerment programs. And We've been doing this for six years and just opened a second school for girls. 
and are growing. Our girls are thriving. They're number one in our whole district on their most recent government exams. And we have big dreams of taking this model of a school for girls and expanding it across Kenya and, and beyond. And so our book, Find Me Unafraid, came out last week. And it's so great to, to be here and to be able to share a little bit of it with you. And then we'll have a lot of time for, for questions. And it's just, it's great to be here with so many people. Okay. So I will try to read. <clears throat> now I can read. Huh? <laughs> so I'll take you back. Uh, is that... We, I was one of the founders of Shining Up for Community, and it was not an easy idea because, think about it, more than one million people live in a small square. It was really, really hard life, whereby you feel like you cannot do anything, you know, because how can you change that? It's scary. And I say I was very, very angry man and very, very sad, but what I did was that I turned my anger into something positive. I saw a little bit of hope, of light, that I can do something. So I'm going to tell you a story here. We had to work quickly, otherwise the overseer will complain. And we will quickly find ourselves out of a job. We knew how entirely disposable we were. Because every day, there was a line of people outside the factory who didn't get chosen to work that day. Some lingered at the gate throughout the day, waiting for someone on the inside to fall upon hard luck. We were the machines running Nairobi's economy. It was not our brains, just our strength that made us useful until we had no strength left at all. But I was never happy I, as I walked, I wondered if this would be my entire life. Was the most I could hope for my life an endless sense of series of years earning 100 shillings a day in a dangerous job? One night as I was coming home, born tired from work at a maze factory where I carried a huge sacks all day. I met a little boy who was trying to sell a second-hand soccer ball, and I decided that I had to have it. I used my last 20 cents to buy it. Taking it from him as though it was my lifeline. I was tired of being angry. I was tired of violence. I thought, if we could just come together as a community, even if this is just means starting by playing soccer together, that could be the beginning of something good. Coming together as a community, as people, creates more power than what exists when individuals are fighting each other for scraps. Shofko has come a long way from a 20 cents soccer ball, but without that first step, none of this could have existed. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the first time I saw Kibera. 
As we walk the big skyscrapers of downtown Nairobi, several miles to the northeast of us, melt into the distance. We weave through markets with everything from chickens to chairs displayed for sale. Before us sprawls Kibera, one of Africa's largest slums, separated by a set of train tracks from the nearby lower middle class areas that enjoy formal provision of electricity and water. Kibera gives new meaning to the saying, the other side of the tracks. In Kibera, Hundreds of thousands of houses made from sheets of corrugated metal and other recycled materials are piled nearly on top of one another. Garbage line paths thread the neighborhood instead of roads. With its own markets and shops, Kibera is almost a city unto itself. I can't believe this exists. Just minutes away from the beautiful houses, roads, grocery stores, and shopping malls. The Kibera slum goes on for as far as my eyes can see, the sheer magnitude of it incapacitating. I can't go on, can't just keep walking as if this were a sight I see every day. I've never imagined that something like this could exist. I tell him about where I grew up in Denver. The inviting family homes with garages and swings outside, with a hulking tree in the center of our lawn like an anchor. Kennedy nods politely, but I can see with disappointment that he can't picture these scenes. We are so comfortable together, and yet I realize we may never truly be able to understand each other's worlds. This might be too much to expect. I never knew, until I came here, that my background could be something to apologize for, that these privileges were so randomly given to me, while other people were just as randomly denied. Where did the time go, he exclaims. We better get you back to your homestay before dark. No, I think to myself, I'd rather stay here. My mind spins from all I've seen as the day's last beams of sunlight smile down. Thanks, that was really great. Um, we're going to now do a Q&A, so if you two want to take a seat... And I'm going to repeat your questions. This is being podcast, so we want the um, podcast listeners to be able to know what the questions was. So, um, ready to start? Anyone have a question? Yes? And the question is about um, the abuse of little girls who are in the hospital and they're being given placebos instead of the proper medicine. Yeah, so there's two stories we tell in the book. Um, one is about a, a student in our school who's HIV positive and who was getting going to a clinic. Um, this was before we had our own health clinic and was getting treatment but was getting sicker and sicker and ended up developing uh, TB. And so we ended up testing. Kennedy had a friend who worked in a lab 
don't ask, I don't know. <laughs> we ended up testing these drugs and learning that one of the drugs was, was a placebo. And so this child was being enrolled in a study that she never consented to, her, her parents didn't know about. Um, and so we were able to, to change her, and we started our own health clinic, um, which now serves over 60,000 people and is just, is just massive. And so we're really happy to have been able to, to do that. Abuse is a huge issue, um, especially for girls in our community. And so part of what we've seen is our girls, we take the very most vulnerable girls at our school. But being part of our school and part of our ecosystem of change changes so much. And so once about, um, it changes every year, but a large percent of our, of our girls have been abused before starting preschool. But once they're enrolled in school, that percentage drops dramatically. And so school is actually a protection for them. The other thing we've been able to do is we run a gender violence program where we've trained people in the community to be caseworkers, victims advocates, and who understand the whole process, which is incredibly convoluted and incredibly corrupt. Um, I've seen a perpetrator be able to bribe a policeman with $3 to get out. And so we're starting to end this culture of impunity. And last year we had over 273 cases of gender-based violence successfully through and in the court system. But we need to be able to, to grow that program. And so it's one of our big focuses. In the back. And the question is, with girls being so undervalued in the community when they um, start to go to school and that dynamic changes, are there problems within the family? Thank you so much. So it's very interesting because most of our girls are the ones who are able to teach their family how to read and write, you know. So that's a big change. So some of the parents are not able to write and read because of the students from our school. And at first, there was a problem of community didn't like women education. But having a health clinic, clean water, and the library was very powerful that even men felt part of it. So that really changed a lot in my community. Yeah. You've grown so dramatically in, in your services and what you've done. How do you recruit able-bodied The question is, how do you recruit people to work in your schools and clinics and other places? Great question. Thank you, Patty. Um, so, um, yeah, we've grown really fast. So we're, the organization's six years old. Today we have over 250 local employees and are growing every day. And so part of what we do is we try to hire from the communities themselves. And so about 80% of our staff actually come from Kibera and now the second slum that we're working in called Mathare. And so we're able to find and empower people in the communities and provide jobs. But we haven't, we're, there aren't always people who have the skills. For example, especially in our health clinic, finding people who had an opportunity to not only get an education but go to medical school in a community like Kibera is really difficult. And so we are actively recruiting 
the best Kenyans from all over Nairobi who actually commute into Kibera and into Mathare to work with us every day. And so I think what that is also doing is creating a bridge between these two worlds. And Kibera is right in the city, but so many Kenyans have never been to Kibera. And a lot of people who work for us have never been to Kibera before they, they started working with us. And that's created, I think, a really powerful, uh, a powerful bridge. Marjorie. I am aware that um, girls' education all across Africa is finally getting traction. I know of countless numbers of, of schools that have been started for girls and uh, organizations that are really focused on girls' education all the way up to the elders and Archbishop Tutu's group. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I know that, that finally I think there's, there's a big spotlight. But what I'm hearing back from several different organizations and countries is that there are not the jobs after they get out. So these girls' leadership programs are fabulous in educating, you know, even up through college, but then when they get out, it is, their job opportunities are very limited. Are you finding that in Nairobi, and um, how are you addressing that? So the question is that, that girls' education has gained traction up even through college, but then um, what are the opportunities for these young women once they've completed their education? We're actually finding the opposite. I mean, Nairobi is the fastest growing economy in Eastern Africa. Microsoft is headquartered there. Google is headquartered there. Um, there are so many. There's a need for, for talent. But part of the main, one of the main issues is, is networks. So we don't have any graduates yet. Our oldest girls are in sixth grade. We grow vertically. Um, we add one grade per year. But we have a mentorship program that connects a really prominent, successful Kenyan with one of our girls starting in fourth grade. Um, we're starting to make networks with boarding schools in Kenya and also in the U.S. We have a commitment from Hotchkiss and from Miss Porter School and some of the best schools. Um, actually, one of our students, her name is Eunice, came to New York in April and spoke on stage at the Women in the World Summit. You should definitely look up this video. She's 12. She didn't speak a word of English before she started at our school. And she was on stage in front of 2,300 people reciting a poem she wrote. And we were speaking with her. I was really nervous. And so I asked her if she was nervous. And she looked at me like that was the dumbest question anyone had ever asked her. And, and then on stage, she performed this poem. And she started crying. And so I asked her later why she was crying. And she said it was because this was a dream. And her poem was about a dream. And, and so Eunice, and she went to visit you know, all of these fancy boarding schools, um, Mount Holyoke University. So we're also getting commitments from universities. Mount Holyoke, Arizona State University have already made commitments to educating our girls. And then in Kenya, we actually have developed a program not just for our girls, but for young people that we work with, connecting them with the formal sector economy. And so we're working with leading institutions like Barclays, like Standard Charter Bank, like um, the hospitality industry, to, to connect young people to a job market that exists, but oftentimes it's just the skills and the network that, that don't. And so I think our girls are definitely going to be incredible future leaders. What I want to add on that quickly is that, according to my experience, is the isolation. We were so poor that the world was divided. We never knew what's happened on the other side. So it was my dream that to bring the world together, those who have and those who don't have. So right now, you're able to create what's called mentorship. 
people are able to come to Kibera to mentor our girls and also to mentor young people. And we've seen a lot of people getting jobs through that connection. Poverty is another word of isolation and being invisible. The, the question is about um, Kennedy's transition from his very informal education to be able to go to college and, and be successful in college. Okay. Jessica helped a lot in <laughs> applications. And I remember a day when you were filling the, the forms, how much your family earns, you know. And you know what? I was tired of writing zero, zero, zero. So I wrote... $900 that my family have. It was, they have nothing. So Jessica asked me, Kennedy, why did you write 900 I told her, Jessica, you know what? I'm tired of writing 000. You know? <laughs> but the short answer is that I saw myself as a, a hungry tiger in a cage. Then they opened the cage. You know, you, you, know, you go out there. And I was not playing with opportunity. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I was not joking around. I was, I remember the day I went to the library at Wesleyan, I never used the computer by then. I didn't know how to print the paper. I've worked so hard on this paper, and it's the time to print it. So I went at six. Nobody was there. So I'm still trying to figure out, I don't get it. Then around 7.30, somebody comes in, and I, I ask him, please, do me a favor here. And he printed my paper, and I gave him a big hug. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you made it, you know? So... <laughs> Small things like that, you know. So I think I was determined. I knew where I came from. And I knew I was beyond the game. And I have to run much more harder miles to, to catch up with other people. By going to the professors. I wrote my papers earlier. And I really worked hard. Anybody, it's possible. Of course, in Kennedy's life, the person who he hugged was the editor of the campus newspaper. And so, <laughs> wrote like I think three articles, and soon he became the mayor of Wesleyan too. Through my hug. Jess, why don't you tell them a little bit about the philosophy of the school, what the school's like? Thanks for asking, Marnie. So, Mar Jessica's going to talk a little bit more about the school. So Marty and Arna, who are sitting here, um, have come over three times to train teachers at our school. Um, and I think the philosophy, so I went to the Logan School for elementary school. And um, Marty was the principal at the Logan School and had to help me with math. And so that was how we first connected. I really dreaded those times with Marty. But <laughs> I learned later that uh, my opinion changed dramatically. No, um, Marty and Arna have really helped us to figure out how do you take the, the principles of a school like Logan, of creativity, of critical thinking skills, and, and develop those in a culture where the education system is really based on rote memorization. And so the school, from the beginning 
the premise was sort of on, on creativity. I thought a lot and you know with our teachers about like what my kindergarten teacher Lisa would do who's also here <laughs> um, I think that's in the book as well and the school developed and so we have a curriculum that is really based on hands-on experiential learning and it's been a shift for our teachers and, and their thinking but it has such amazing results. Our girls just think and they problem solve. And I remember when Marty was there and he, he put a math problem on the board that had some skills the girls knew, but a bunch that they didn't. And he whispered to me, he's like, I don't think anyone's going to solve this problem. And I think two of the girls did. And it was just amazing to, to see. And um, we were studying in social studies. We were studying community. And so we went out and the girls interviewed a business owner who's part of the community and one of our second grade students raises her hand and says, excuse me, sir, can I ask you where you got your startup capital? <laughs> I looked at her and I was like, wow, I really wished I had known what that word meant a few years ago. <laughs> but those are the types of questions and, and leadership that our, our girls have. And we've been really lucky to work with Marty and Arna on developing and a school in New York City called the Chapin School on, on developing and, and training. But I think it's an ongoing thing that we think about. I don't know, Marty, do you have anything to add? <laughs> um, I'm a teacher, and I am a big fan of like, trying to create global perspective for my students. And I've, through books and just movies and memoirs, I've fallen in love with Africa and had the opportunity to go to Kenya this past summer. Yeah. And com coming back, I always tell people that I didn't have much of a um, cultural shock, but I think that's a lie. And I guess what my thing is, is there's so much that can be done to help other people. How do, how do you know or how do you guys know where to start? The question, yeah, in brief, is, is um, how did they know where to start? Yeah, that's a, I think you have to have a passion. It's very important. And uh, when you think about the problems we are facing in the world nowadays, society, they are so huge. And sometimes you have to think small. I thought of a soccer ball. And through soccer ball, a lot of things happen. Jessica Theater, you know what I mean? So they, we have, they have to, believe, to teach our kids to know that they can have an impact, no matter how small it is, you know? Can be collecting pencils and pens, send them to Africa. Those small things can really have an impact. Just a sense of hope and a drive. And I think to Kennedy's point, if you look at the whole problem... Like if you had asked us six years ago, we would have never thought that we would be have been able to grow, and we still think there's so much left to do. And so I think you have to look at, at a piece of it and just, just try to do your part. And so whether that's educating your students, whether that's sponsoring a girl, whether it's you know taking a trip with your family to Kenya, whatever that, that impact is, I think that sort of what we've seen is that it's about what we all do together, and no one person can do everything. We can't do everything. We need the support of everyone in this room to be able to, to do what we hope to do. And so I think that is kind of what I, I try to think about, is that you can't be the solution to it all. But you can solve one piece. You can sponsor one girl. And then if a lot of people do that, a lot of things start to change. Okay, one more question. <laughs> <laughs> Marty said about the school. Anyway, I mean, I've been fortunate to have been there. It's a magical place. But you skimmed over something earlier, Jessica. You talked about how you changed, you know, that Kenya's used to this growth, memorization, and this magical place you created. You 
said very quickly in your introduction, I just read it recently, I was taken back by it. Your kids tested number one among all the schools in Kenya. So here's this magical thing they've created, and now they're on, you know, that's, I thought that was really And the the question or, or more comment was was how um, Jessica had mentioned, but really maybe could elaborate on how she took these girls and um, they became number one in Kenya. Yeah, so they're number one in our district, which is a huge thing because our district has some of the most affluent schools in the country. And I think, you know, we didn't really, a lot of Kenyan schools, they just teach to the test. And we have spent a lot of time reassuring our teachers, you know, don't worry. If you teach them how to think, they're going to be able to problem solve. They're going to be able to look at the test. And so our girls were pretty unprepared for this test. And they just sort of walked in and they did it, which is how they do a lot of things. And so I think that what that, that teaches me is, you know, our girls are sponges. They start school not speaking a word of English. And three months in, they're prattling away. Um, Eunice, when she was here, she had to do this poem so many times. We were going to the very last place that she had to do the poem. And she was so sick and tired of this poem. <laughs> and so she was like, do I really have to do that poem again? And I said, well, why don't you write a new one? And so she took my iPhone, and in 25 minutes on the train, she had a new poem written. And it was beautiful. And, and that is a type of, of education, I think. Thanks so much, Jessica. I think what you are doing there, my country is much more memorization. And it's about, we're teaching them critical thinking. You know, how to, you know, and in my, in my community, people think they are rude girls. Your kids are so rude, because how can the women be like that? They should be quiet. You know, so I love that, you know. <laughs> anyway, I will do one of my African culture. This is a true culture. Forgive me. There are two people here really mean a lot to me, and they are David and Helen. You taught me a lot in life. Thank you so much. Can you just stand up, please? Thank you. Well, okay, one more, one last. No, back there, back there. How, the question was, uh, how can the audience and beyond this audience support you? Thank you. Well, first, we hope you'll read the book and that you'll read it and you'll tell somebody else or maybe 10 other people um, to read the book. Uh, we hope to get the story out there. And I think when people connect to something on a person-to-person -person level, we do more. Um, you can also sponsor a girl at our school. It's $100 a month, and it provides two meals a day, her education, her teacher, her health care, everything. You can sponsor a lot of girls. Um, you can tell other people and learn more. You know, follow us on, on Facebook, on social media, and tell people about, about what we're doing. But we need everyone in this room to be compelled to, to get involved and to join our movement. And so Megan is also here and also from Shofco and would love to talk to you more about what your individual contribution can be. But we also have a website, shofco.org. But we really hope that you'll read the story and you'll be compelled to share it with your community. I think we're all, all pretty excited about supporting you. Thank you so much, Kennedy and Jessica. Thank you all for coming tonight. You're a great audience. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. 
Stay pod tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.